Macworld Podcast, number 31, March 8th, 2006. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. I hope you've had a, about a week to digest all of our new updated news that's going on in the Apple and Mac world. This week we're going to take a little different shift, and we're going to... Uh, be talking about the Emerging Technology Conference 2006 that is going on this week in San Diego. I was down there for the opening two days earlier this week, and I'm going to be bringing you some excerpts uh, from some neat things that I saw and heard uh, down there. But before we get to that, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone who's been writing in, telling me how I can improve the podcast, writing in, asking about cases. And yes, I still do have some 3G cases left, so if you still want a 3G iPod case, Really simple. Just send me an email and let me know what you like about the show. Let me know how I can improve the show, and I'll be happy to send that out to you. Make sure you include how to pronounce your name and also your address so I can send it to you. So the Emerging Technology Conference put on by O'Reilly, the company that puts out, you know, those technical geeky books like uh, Grease Monkey Hacks, Google Map Hacks, Podcasting Hacks, etc., etc., they do this conference every year to invite different companies and different people and other, you know, technology pioneers to come and talk about the various things that are happening in their assorted fields. And this year, they brought quite an assortment of people. They run the gamut from, I'm, you know, I've talked about Grease Monkey to a new program that is being developed by Amazon uh, called Mechanical Turk. And also um, some really neat research as far as interfaces go from a guy by the name of Jeff Hahn from the Department of Computer Science at New York University. So we're going to be playing some excerpts from their, you know, 15-minute seminar sessions, and uh, I'll be, be introducing those as it goes on. And we'll be closing out the show today with uh, about a seven-minute interview that I did with Jeff Hahn talking about his new multi-touch interface research. So to start things off, we're going to be hearing from uh, Mark Pilgrim, who has a website called DiveIntoMark.org, and he is the author of Grease Monkey Hacks. Grease Monkey, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, is a really great extension for the Firefox browser. Grease Monkey is an um, extension that runs in Firefox, as I said, which allows you to add on JavaScript that you can download or that you can create yourself that will make any web page do whatever you want. So what does that mean? Say you wanted to be able to look up books on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, Borders.com, Half.com, eBay, whatever, but you don't have an easy way to cross-check all the different prices when you're looking up a book. There's a Grease Monkey script called BookBurrow that can do this. So literally you can just mouse over a title or click a title and it will instantly pop up a little window that will say, you know, these are the different prices for this book at these different stores. What's another one? When I read the New York Times online, I often like to read it, you know, so the text goes out uh, down across the whole screen in printer format, basically, which strips out all of the images and all of the graphics and all of those kinds of things, just because I find it easier to read that way. There's a Grease Monkey script that will do that. So anytime I click a New York Times article, it will automatically switch me to the printer-friendly version so that it makes it easier to read on my screen. 
And there's just lots of other Grease Monkey scripts that can do this. They're super easy to install. It takes literally about five seconds. Uh, and if you go to userscripts.org, you can find a whole slew of the different uh, Grease Monkey scripts that are out there. There's probably many hundreds, if not thousands, of different scripts for all different kinds of websites that do all different kinds of things. So anyway, we're going to hear a little bit about uh, Grease Monkey from Mark Pilgrim, the author of Grease Monkey Hacks. The first scripts were very simple. They would fix broken websites that only worked in IE, but ought to have worked in Firefox, but just didn't because of some stupid programming error. And they could fix that on the fly. Uh, and and the, the effect was seamless. You could simply navigate to the page, and the user JavaScript would run, fix the page on the fly, and you could use it in Firefox normally. So other things, uh, my, my first user script was a script called Butler, which I have a screenshot of in a second, uh, which added links to uh, Google search results to uh, you know, uh, try, your, try your search on uh, Yahoo, Ask Jeeves, all the web, uh, right up there at the top of their search results. Uh, most people don't remember Google before they were this conglomerate uh, mega corporation actually did this when they were at, you know, two guys in Stanford. They actually did this. Uh, didn't find what you were looking for? Try your search on. Uh, Hotbot, uh, Alta Vista, Excite, all of the web pages, of, uh, all of the major search engines of the day. They were, the, they were the scrappy little upstart. And uh, somewhere along the line, they lost that, and I decided to put it back. So the fundamental thing here is that my web is not your web. And this has always been true, first with user style sheets, then with pop-up blockers, then with you know, things like ad block, uh, custom hosts files that, uh, that filter out certain domains that serve ads or that serve spyware. Um, but all of those are, are focused on taking things away, removing objectionable content, ads, and so forth. Um, but Grease Monkey, it can do that, of course, but it can also add things. So Rail Dornfest uh, once installed a Grease Monkey script early on, probably about, uh, about a year ago, actually, that uh, integrated Google with delicious on the Google search results page you could actually have it would have a link next to each search result saying add this to you know post this to delicious the uh, bookmarking site and then he uh, you know installed a bunch of other scripts and uh, two weeks later forgot all about it uh, went to do a, a Google search and was amazed to see that Google had added this wonderful delicious integration which he uh, promptly blogged <laughs> and made a hasty correction once it was pointed out that uh, this was actually his own doing and he had forgotten all about it. Uh, this led to the memorable phrase, greasing oneself. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit and hear from Amazon and their new program called Mechanical Turk. Mechanical Turk is a new service that's been developed by Amazon to allow for programmers to write into a program human intelligence or in Amazon lingo corporate speak, artificial, artificial intelligence. So what that means is, so say you have a program that comes to a point in its, you know, executing something where it requires a human to say 
this object is A or B. For example, say you're looking at a photograph and you want to know if there's a pizza in the photograph. A computer program can't recognize a pizza just by looking at it. Only humans can do that. So this way, it provides a means online for various little tasks like this to be put up and different companies or programmers can say, hey, we'll pay you some amount so that we can get this little small piece of data so that our program can do whatever it does. I also wrote about this on the Editor's Notes blog, uh, which will be, of course, available in the show notes, so you might want to check that out as well. There's a little coding example uh, for those of you who are into. So Felipe Cabrera of Amazon described at the Emerging Technology Conference yesterday about what Mechanical Turk is and how it can be used. We have to use judgment that we cannot find in software. And if you have such a software, please let me know. I would love to have it. Okay? So, like, you know, if you ask the question, is that a chair or a table? When anybody here says, well, you know, it's obviously a table, right? No, it's a chair. Let's take a vote. And the point is there is no software that can really help us decide that. So we figured out that we needed for our business to incorporate quite smoothly uh, humans into the software, into the decision process, okay? And that's what we are enabling. And you'll see how. We are going to provide a web service, we provide a web service API to help you do this, okay? And what we've observed so far, it's in beta, is that the response can be outstandingly fast. You can get many people quickly to do things for you, all right? Uh, in one of the tests that we had, at some point we had like 43,000 simultaneous users doing something. I mean, and this is the tip of the iceberg so far, but you can see how this enables uh, you know, massively parallel human computing. And your code is simple. It's like code, right? And at some point, though, you just call uh, the web service and say, hey, go do something for me. You know, in this situation, we're making believe that we want to try and find is a human in um, a picture or not. So you've got the picture, you've submitted this unit of work to the Mechanical Turk system, and you just fire off the code, and then you just wait asynchronously, as we do mostly, uh, until the community of workers that, you, that have assigned this task to them answers, and then you, your code keeps going. One example of a company that is using the Mechanical Turk service is castingwords.com. This is a new startup out of New Mexico that is doing some really neat things with podcasting transcription. So you put up a podcast and... Within 24 hours, at the price of 42 cents per minute, you will get a transcript of your podcast. I'm actually considering trying this out just to see how good their service is. We have uh, Nathan McFarland from CastingWords.com who was brought up on stage uh, to talk with Mr. Cabrera about how he uses Mechanical Turk in his company, CastingWords.com. We've had some chemistry podcasts come through. We found chemistry students who used us studying and getting paid to do it. That's pretty cool. Um, the professor was certainly very happy. <laughs> this workforce being so good at everything is really cool because it allows for you to do small jobs. We actually had our fact edited on MTurk. We didn't want to edit it. It allows for us to start up, too. We started up with two geeks and a server. If we'd had to do Indian outsourcing, it wouldn't have happened. 
All right, and finally, we're at the last part of the Macworld podcast today. We're going to be hearing from the Jeff Hahn, a consultant with the New York University Department of Computer Science. He is working on some really neat stuff. This, I have to say, really blew me away and, and is my favorite part of the conference that I saw. Uh, firstly, let me just say that before, if you have time, before you listen to this next section, you may want to go onto the show notes and look at the video that we're going to have linked up there from his demonstration, because a lot of this is visual, and it's really not going to make a whole lot of sense unless you've seen it. So if you have time, if you happen to be near a computer, go ahead and pause the podcast right now and go look at the video and then come back and resume where you were listening. If you can't do it, then after you're done listening, go watch the video and it'll make a lot more sense, because uh, it just really, you know, words can't really capture quite what you can see uh, in the video demonstration. Now, Jeff Hahn, as I said, is doing some really neat stuff with multi-touch user interfaces. What that means is normally you have a computer with a mouse that basically has one point of interface. You can move it around, you know, up and down, side to side, etc. If you can imagine a touch interface, again, you would only have one point of contact. You would just have your fingertip wherever it was. Probably at your ATM, you might use something like a touch interface where you press yes or no and, and so on. If you had a multi-touch interface, you could do all kinds of interesting things. You could do drawing. You could do some really neat stuff with photo editing. You could you could drag photos across the screen, stack them on top of each other, and zoom in and zoom out on that space so that you would have essentially an infinite workspace. And that's just a really neat idea. And, you know, it's a little bit futuristic, but I think, you know, particularly an innovative company like Apple might be, might do well to pay attention to what, uh, Jeff Hahn and his team at NYU are doing, uh, with this interfaces. So maybe in the future, we might see, uh, cool new Mac machines with this crazy multi-touch interface. Uh, so we're gonna cut to right now, uh, Jeff Hahn from New York University talking about multi-touch user interface. Um, now, multi-touch itself isn't a new concept. It's been played around. Bill Buxton been playing around like stuff like this in the 80s. But the approach we've developed here is really interesting because it's very low cost, it's very high resolution, and probably most importantly, it's really scalable. So it was really easy to make a drafting size form factor like this. And the other thing about this kind of interface, though, is that um, it allows you, I mean, you don't want to throw away everything we've learned over the years. I mean, this still takes advantage of all that wonderful parts of the brain that have evolved over the years to remember speechfully the where you place something. You, you have kinesthetic memory, you have memory, you have the, the idea that you remember where you kind of left things here. Uh, but the ability to kind of really quickly zoom in and out and move around things and have kind of a, a bigger work area just because if you run out of space, it's like, okay, I'll go over here and move it out. And it really changes things when you can really zoom in and out quickly, pan around. You really now have more of an infinite desktop and you're kind of just standard... Uh, fixed area. And finally, I just wanted to also include a interview that I did with Jeff Hahn. I was able to catch him in the hallway between sessions yesterday down at the conference in San Diego, and we had a chance to just talk face-to-face about how this got started and what he thinks the future of multi-touch interface will be. Once again, this is my interviewing Jeff Hahn from New York University. Tell us a little bit about how this, uh, this screen project got started. Well, I've always been interested in interactive graphics, but for a long time, you've been seeing graphics start to really mature out, and I start to realize, wow, you know, I like graphics that are actually interactive, and so I found that things like the mouse 
we're starting to become limiting to that. You can only do so many certain kinds of interactions with that now. So I really started actually getting opened up into the idea of how to be more expressive into the computer. So it's just kind of been kind of germinating for a while, the idea of trying to make something a little more advanced input-wise. Now, what was the the sort of evolution of this of the screen? I mean, what you demoed ranged from doing all kinds of different things. With you started out drawing lines, and then you you know toward the end you're doing cool things with doing axes on maps and things like that. How do you come up with the different applications for something like this? Well, a lot of the things is experimentation. I mean, multi-touch is a completely new research field right now. Um, it's been played around with in the 80s, but now we actually have, with the benefit of the kind of censoring approach that we develop, a really high fidelity, a really high quality amount of data uh, that actually opens up a whole new class of applications. So it's not just one class of applications. As you can see, we've been playing around lots of different things. And coming up with this multi-touch interaction vocabulary, that's basically through uh, experimentation. Now, it helps that we're trying so many different directions because it really makes a nice, interesting palette of things to play around with, and it never gets boring. It's always exciting, and it's a lot of fun for us. Now, does something like this, I assume it has, I mean, it's, in a way, it sort of almost turns the whole idea of what a personal computer is on its head. And you'd, I would imagine you'd have to write a completely new operating system, a completely new all kinds of programs and stuff. How do we migrate from, you know, this iBook that I have here in front of me to a system that runs totally off of that? Well, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure we have to throw away the entire operating system. However, it's all the current operating systems, including Linux and OS X and Windows, they all still are pretty hard-coded the idea of a single interaction pointer, a single pointer. And it's very difficult right now to hack into that to, to make it more generalized. So right now, we just take over the whole screen. Um, for real computing applications coming soon, I mean, one idea is to just replace the entire keyboard with one of these kind of input devices, these multi-touch interactive devices, and just, you know, fall back on emulating the keyboard. I'm not sure that's the right way to go because, sure, it might ease adoption by giving everybody what they're familiar with already, but I think it will ultimately hinder things because it might get sucked into a rut of thinking, okay, it's just another dynamic keyboard. There, There's a real opportunity here to make much more interesting totally out-of-the-box type of input uh, that has nothing to do with the traditional limitations of a fixed set of buttons that are fixed out in a fixed layout. So it's it's um, it's going to require a lot of integration together from the hardware all the way up the software stack, all the way up to the applications. The application developers have to really rethink what they're going to do. You can't just say, oh yeah, let's put Photoshop on there. Sure, you can run Photoshop on it, but it'll only emulate what you know, you only use the multi-touch sensor with only a single point at a time. And that's not really what it's about. It's about really rethinking the entire stack. So, I mean, you, you demoed a, one, one feature that I could totally see happen was, you know, you had a situation where you had, you know, hundreds of different images and you were dragging around the screens and you were making them bigger and smaller and rotating them around and all this kind of stuff. Do you go to people, photographers who work with digital photography and you say, hey, you know, we've got this crazy, this crazy program and this crazy interface. What would you like to do with it? How does that work? Well, absolutely. Any interface designer has to work with their audience. So I have, in fact, had photographers come through, and they all instantaneously, of course, say, yes, that's what we want. But, you know, once we get past an knee-jerk reaction, no, we actually sit down with them and study and say, well, what do you normally do? We observe them in their actual natural light box, and you work with them and say, well, what do they really use it for? Sometimes we just passively observe them without interacting. 
Uh, other times, uh, photographers are quite tech-savvy and actually say, no, it would be really great if we do these operations also at the same time. Um, I think it's really neat that photo manipulation is actually becoming quite a mainstream thing. And so you see Apple, you see Adobe, a lot of other people making these wonderful photo uh, kind of management tools. And I think that's also interesting because photos are, are large assets. They're visual. They're also very big. And you often have hundreds or thousands of them. And this kind of interface is going to be really valuable to those people because you can really quickly go and zoom out to the big picture, but at the same time drill down to the details and really focus on one or two pictures at a time. Now, you said you've been working on this project for about three years and it's only part-time, and you've, you know, I'm sure this isn't the first demo you've done. Um, what's next for you? Where does this research go from here? Well, the research right now is about the new kinds of interaction modalities on top. So uh, three years ago, yeah, we first developed the initial ideas of the sensor and everything like that. Kind of put it on the back burner again because it's kind of a part-time thing. But uh, right now it's definitely reaching critical mass where we definitely want to try to get into as many people's hands who might actually be part of doing that research that pushes what these new interfaces are now enabled can do. So the next step is really start to grow a community of people that actually can figure out what exactly to do with this data and create all these new kinds of widgets that we know we're not going to be the only ones developing. That's why I'm so excited about here. I gave a talk here not really to present my work, but to basically show a peek to everybody here about where I think myself and a bunch of other research groups are going to start to go. Now, uh, just one last quick thing. Um, You said that you guys built, you said you have two working prototypes, a smaller, about 12-inch one, and a larger table or tablet uh, version. Those must be, I mean, if they're only two in existence, they they can't be cheap to produce. Uh, if you were to produce, say, a few hundred or a few thousand of them, I mean, would they be? Do you think? Do you foresee a, a, a situation where you know the people who are you know that they're common to have, just like people have laptops or whatever else? It, it actually is a pretty low cost technique. Um, we've only built a couple just because we've been having much more fun interacting and making these new kind of software widgets on top. Um, this technology actually does have a real shot of becoming ubiquitous. So uh, whether it's this or some some other technology. It's not really the point here. It's whatever allows the research to continue. So uh, it's not expensive, and I'm working on ways to try to get into as many hands as possible. Great. Well, thanks a lot, and good luck to you in the future. Thank you. Well, that about wraps up our show number 31 for March 8th, 2006. I hope that you've enjoyed our slight diversion from normal uh, Mac news and such. Um, Of course, we're going to be back on our two-week schedule, um, so we're going to be having a new one every two weeks, so two weeks from now. March the 22nd. Now, I've gotten a lot of emails from you guys, and I appreciate you writing in, and I've gotten some great feedback. And one thing that people would like to have is more frequent podcasts. As I said in the last podcast, I'm happy to do them. We've been discussing with some of the editors exactly how to do that. One of the things that's been holding us up is uh, bandwidth and, you know, the fact that we do are trying to do as high sound quality podcasts as possible, but at the same time, you know, keeping down the constraints on our web servers so that it doesn't all come crashing down so that we can keep providing more material to you. In order to alleviate some of those concerns, we're going to be switching this podcast to an AAC format. So what that means is if you're already subscribed and you listen on your iPod or in iTunes on your Mac, this isn't going to affect you very much. That just means that the file size is going to be a bit smaller, which is going to make it a bit easier for us. Um, and also we're going to be now available as an enhanced podcast. So if you've got a 
a new iPod, the one with the video screen, or an iPod Nano, or something else, some other iPod that can display images, then we're, you're going to be able to see images that we are going to display at various points during the podcast, and it's going to be bookmarked, of course. So we're going to take that uh, step. If you're listening to the podcast on something else other than an iPod, and there's probably very few of you out there, like an iRiver or some other MP3 player that doesn't support AAC files, we're going to be leaving the MP3 file in its higher quality up on the website as a, as a separate download. So if you're hearing this, you know, say you've got it downloaded on iTunes and then maybe you wanted to move it later to another device, go ahead and download that second MP3 file. It's exactly the same. It's a bit longer and a bit higher quality, but again, you lose out on the enhanced podcast. And as I said, this is probably going to only affect a very small number of our listeners out there. Um, so if you have any other questions, feel, feel free to email me. Um, so yes, uh, thank you for the emails. Keep them coming. Please email me, cfarovar at macworld.com. Uh, I just, I don't know if I'm going to be able to re- read through all of the emails on the show, um, but if you do email me, I will write back, and if you want one, I can send you a 3G iPod case until I run out. Um, so I just wanted to take just a couple of minutes to read from a few emails that I've gotten from people uh, that have sent in. This one comes in from Dan Grenfell Lee from Boston, Massachusetts. He says, hey, Sarus, great podcast. What I like best about the podcast and where it makes a unique contribution not found in the other Mac-related podcasts is in the following. One, interviews with Macworld editors. I'm particularly interested in hearing their opinions about recent news items that might not make it into the editor's blogs. Interviews with writers that expands on reviews or lab tests. In other words, I think the podcast works great as an extension of the content published at Macworld. By the way, the Mac user blog is great. Thanks, Dan Grenfell-Lee, Boston, Massachusetts. Um, well, Dan, we appreciate your, uh, your telling us, uh, what you like and, and we'll try and keep, keep up more of the same. And hopefully we're going to be, uh, doing some more increased frequency podcasts, possibly even once a week. So stay tuned for that and we'll be, uh, you'll be sure and, and find out all of that information at macworld.com. Just going to read a couple more emails before we head out for the day. Uh, this one comes in from Michael Black of St. Louis, Missouri. He says, Sarus, thanks for the Macworld podcast. I really appreciated your recent podcast about the Leap A virus or Trojan. Unfortunately, there will be more and more attacks like this on our favorite OS in the future, which makes podcasts like yours so valuable to Mac users like me. Please bring in more experts on safety and security with tips and tricks to keep our Macs safe. Quick question. I don't have any virus software on my Mac. I haven't seen much of a need. That said, who makes virus software for the Mac? Which does Macworld recommend and why? Michael, that was from Michael Black, St. Louis, Missouri. Um, Michael, I believe Symantec does make uh, some virus software. There's a few other competitors out there, um, and if you actually go ahead and search for uh, antivirus software on Macworld.com, there should be some tips for you up there. Um, but we may do another show uh, on security in the future, so stay tuned for that. This one is from Peter Chen from Rome, New York. Dear Sarus, I want to thank you for your interview with Rob Griffiths about the OS X Leap A malware. I have not been a listener of podcasts in general, but this one gave me the most concise and understandable summary of the issues surrounding Leap A and the other exploits that have come to the fore in recent days. Rob's description of the Safari exploit was particularly helpful. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Peter Chen, Rome, New York. Um, Peter, uh, thank you so much for the kind words. Uh, Rob, of course, is our uh, editor of OS10Hints.com, and he lives up in Oregon, and he contributes a lot of other content to to Macworld and Macworld.com. So you can check out, if you like his work and his explanations, please do uh, check out his writing. He'll be coming out pretty soon with a very comprehensive article uh, about his experience with the new 
uh, Intel Mac Mini. So stay tuned for that, of course, on uh, Macworld.com. Just going to read two more emails. This one is from Luis Guerrero uh, from Paraguay. Hi, Sarus. I'm a listener of your podcast since it came up. I'm listening from Paraguay in South America. I have a couple of suggestions for you. Macworld is the biggest Mac publication, so I guess you have access to many important Mac developers. So keep going with the interviews, but also add more. I like reviews, so the important products that the magazine reviews and posts online can also be reviewed on your podcast. I'd like to hear a section of How To and 911 to be included in future podcasts. I'd also like to hear new and hidden Easter eggs on the Mac. And I'd also like to hear about tips that Macworld has to offer. Keep up the awesome work. Luis Guerrero from Paraguay. Uh, Luis, thank you so much for, for your writing in. Um, we will be possibly adding some more reviews and, and different things on the podcast. Uh, we're a relatively young podcast, so that's why, like I said, I'm trying to solicit feedback and, and try and keep things fresh and interesting. Uh, just going to read one last quick email to close things out today. Um, this one is from Ryan Brennan from New Jersey. He says, I'm only 14, but I really like Macs, and I enjoy Macworld Magazine as well as the Macworld Podcast. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Ryan. It covers all aspects of Apple technology and is very informative. The only thing I would like to ask from the podcast is that they come out more frequently. I hate waiting two weeks for a good podcast, so if you can, please possibly make it once a week. If so, thanks, and if not, I understand. Thanks, Ryan Brennan, New Jersey. Uh, Ryan, as I said, we are trying to do them more frequently. Um, we're in some talks, uh, so possibly we may move to a, a quicker schedule. So bear with us um, while we try and work all of that out. Um, but again, please send all questions, comments, answers, suggestions, um, you know, things you'd like to hear, things you didn't like on the show, anything. Email me, cfaravar at macworld.com. And until I run out of 3G iPod cases, I'm happy to send one to you. So hope to have all of that coming. And as I said, please check out our brand new blog, macuser.com, where I'm one of a uh, few posters up on there. And also, of course, the new Macworld Virtual CD in its completely redesigned format will be um, is tagged right up on the front of the new April issue that will have the special URL that you can access some exclusive content, including a video from our very own Chris Breen on some new iLife tips. Signing off from San Francisco, this is Sarus Faravar for the Macworld Podcast. <laughs>